So we are teaching through the book of John. So uh, if you could open your Bible to John chapter 7. And we're going to be in the first 19 verses of John chapter 7. John 7 verses 1 to 19. I will read these 19 verses and then we will pray. John 7 verse 1 says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, that's like his literal actual brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them. This is really, really important, these next two verses. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And we'll stop right there. We'll continue on that conversation next week. So let me pray. Jesus, I just am so thankful that right now as we open up your word, we have teaching from heaven. Like, like, thank you that we don't have to rely on me and my mind or any other person's thoughts. Like, we have teaching that came from you, God. It has authority and it's true. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask you would help us together to see so clearly your word is from you, God. It's from heaven. It's from the King of kings and it has authority and it gives life. God, if there's any way in which we are confused about your truth or we just don't understand, Lord, would, would you just powerfully move right now, Holy Spirit? Give us confidence and faith in your word. And above all, we just want to see Jesus more clearly and love Jesus more, God. So come now, Holy Spirit, fill this place. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, imagine if we lived in a culture where the goal was to get as few followers on our social media, right? That's your goal. Like, how low can I get my followers? Um, if that was the goal, Jesus at this moment would be winning, 
okay? He, uh, a couple days ago, just fed about 20,000 people and in one moment got 20 new thousand followers, right? Imagine seeing that on your whatever. Your Twitter just went up 20,000. He's like, man, I'm killing it. The disciples are like, yes, Jesus. And then the next day, he literally loses all of them. One day, one day goes by, all of his followers are like, this guy is crazy, unfollow, unfollow. That happens 20,000 times. Imagine if you lost 99% of your followers in a moment. And then, so that's chapter six, right? As, as we start John chapter seven, Jesus is going home. It says in verse one, he went about in Galilee, which is where he grew up. And uh, in these 19 verses, he has two important conversations. Number one, he, he talks with his actual like blood brothers, like the, the guys who grew up in his house with him. They're technically his half brothers. Um, and then after he has that conversation, he goes to the feast in Jerusalem and he has another really important conversation. And we're going to kind of focus on those two conversations. What is Jesus saying? So um, in verses three and four, Jesus is at home. Um, it starts with Jesus' brothers and they're honestly kind of mocking Jesus. Like they're actually kind of making fun of him and they're suggesting to him, hey, Jesus, listen to us, let, let us suggest a way that you can maybe like boost your popularity. We know you just took a hit. We know people don't think you're popular right now. So listen to us and look what they say in verse three and four. This is important. So his brother said to him, leave here because it was just Galilee. It was just like a ghetto place. Go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, listen to these next words, show yourself to the world. Hear what they're saying? Jesus, show yourself. Like, it's time to show off. If you're really doing all these miracles, go to where everybody is. It's a Jewish, Jewish feast. There's lots of people there. And go show yourself to the world. They're saying, just like our culture says, like, why would you not promote yourself? Like, why would you not want more people to see you? Like, that's, that's our culture. Promote yourself, right? Like, promote whatever cool things about yourself that you can, your strengths, your glory, whatever. Pictures show like, wow, you're awesome. Like they're saying, promote yourself, show yourself to the world. And in this moment, the brothers of Jesus could not fathom that Jesus was okay not just showing himself to the world because Jesus isn't like them and he's not like us and he's not like our culture that says, hey, seek glory for yourself. This is really interesting, but Jesus just showed us He's not simply about gaining popularity. Like that's not what Jesus is about. He's not about being popular. And you know what's crazy is he's not even about getting followers or disciples per se. As we just saw in the last chapter, 20,000 people, they were his disciples. It used that exact word and then they left him. Jesus is after something more significant than popularity, more than followers. He's after this thing called belief or faith. And John, the writer of this book, tells us that that thing is actually a miracle. It's supernatural. You, you can't love and trust and believe in Jesus on your own, by your own strength, with your own flesh. You need to literally supernaturally be born again. Like the, the book of John is showing us that and, and written so that we would have faith in Jesus. Not just like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Not just I want to be like Jesus. Not just, you know, I want to walk around and follow him. Like it's written that we would have faith, supernatural, born again faith. That's what Jesus is about. And, and look, that's why the next verse, verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
Like Jesus is after faith. He's after belief. He's not after fans. He's not after followers. He's not after popularity. He's after belief. And so Jesus confronts his brothers who don't have faith, who are just trying to be like helping him out get popular. And he says in verses six and seven, look, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Okay, here's, this is true. One of our deepest fears in life is to be rejected by somebody, to be like actually hated by somebody. Like we were even made to long for acceptance, to long for human acceptance and praise. And, and that's the way the world works. Jesus is saying, look, look nobody's going to hate you, but... Listen, we don't want somebody to hate us, but one of the quickest ways to be hated and rejected by our culture is to actually speak truth to it. That's what Jesus just said. One of the quickest ways to be hated and rejected by the world is to speak truth, to like see something that's evil and say, hey, that's evil. It's not okay. That, that is an evil thing. To be willing to say, and I'm just going to say it, like killing babies in their womb is evil. Like that's actually an evil thing. That's not okay. That's evil. When we say something like that, there's immediate animosity. Like, you can't say that. Do not say that is evil. When we begin to speak truth, Jesus just says we are hated by the world. And that's why he says in verse 7, the world hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. And when we, if we do that, if we call something evil, all the people um, that that maybe liked us before, but who, who don't like truth are going to be like, man, who are you? What are you saying? And you know what I love about Jesus? It's different than me. He's not afraid of being hated. I'll be honest, you guys, like, I like being liked. I don't like being hated. It's not fun. Um, I, I appreciate when people like me and say nice things about me, yet Jesus is just straight up. He's like, yeah, the world hates me because I speak that, I say that its, its works are evil. And now, so Jesus just kind of confronts his brothers. Listen, I'm not after popularity. The world hates me. And then um, I'm going to quickly read through verses 8 to 13 as it sets up the next conversation. So verses 18, 8 and 9, actually, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not listening to you. I'm going to stay here. And then in verse 10, Jesus does go to this feast. It's a big Jewish feast where everybody goes to Jerusalem. He goes up in private. And then in verse 12, everybody kind of is, is like muttering about Jesus, right? It says in verse 12, there's much muttering. Some people are like, yeah, he's good. And others are like, no, he's leading the people astray. And in verse 13, it says that even though everyone had an opinion, they weren't willing to speak openly because they were afraid of what the Jews thought. In verse 13, it's just like us, like this fear of man, like I don't want people to think something wrong about me, so I'm not going to like speak openly about Jesus because I'm afraid of what people will think. Like there's that human dynamic there of like fear of what people are going to say, fear of rejection. And then in verse 14, it says, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And again, I just want to point out really quickly a couple of things. Number one, again, we just see Jesus fearless, right? Like he knows there's all this like talk about him. He's like, I'm going to go in the middle of the feast, in the middle of the temple, and I'm just going to start teaching truth. And then notice what Jesus is doing. He's not actually at this moment healing people. He's not doing great works. What he's doing is what I'm going to focus on tonight, what we're going to spend our time on. Jesus is speaking, preaching the word of God. He's teaching truth in this area. 
And in a world that desires popularity and, and does evil things, Jesus is willing to stand up and speak truth to it. And in verse 15 is where we're going to spend a lot of time, verse 15 and 16. Notice the reaction to Jesus when he starts teaching, verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Okay, this reaction is very, very common. It's very common when the word of God is being taught. This is what happens. When someone starts teaching truth in the word of God, the reaction is to say, like, who are you? Why, what's your authority? And why do you get to say what is true? Like, you don't even have a seminary degree. That's like what they just said to Jesus. How does this guy know anything he hasn't even studied? They're saying, like, who are you, Jesus? And they try to dis, uh, like, disprove who he is and his authority. The reaction to Jesus speaking truth is, like, whose authority? Who are you? You haven't even gone to school. And this makes sense. The world that we live in value you know, human merit and wisdom and education and, you know, degrees. Um, they did in Jesus' day as well. They were rabbis who were formally trained, and Jesus wasn't one of them. He wasn't trained. He was a carpenter, right? And so this carpenter starts speaking truth, and they're like, honestly, who are you? And I just want to uh, say at this moment um, that education is fine. It's a good thing. Most of us have gone to college or going to college, but it does not qualify someone to know the truth. An education actually does not have a bearing on you knowing the truth and specifically on the word of God. Going to school does not all of a sudden qualify you to be the authority on God's word. And remember this, Jesus was not formally educated and neither were his 12 disciples. They were like fishermen, like the most blue-collar, like non-educated guys there were. And Jesus did that on purpose. He did that on purpose so that when they would teach and they would speak the word of God and when things would happen, people would know where that power and authority came from. Not from people, but from God. And then of all the apostles, only Paul, remember Paul, he was actually formally trained. And I just want to you know, point out how did that formal training go for Paul? He actually hated the truth and hated Christians as was killing everybody. And it wasn't until he had an actual encounter with Jesus that he began to see things clearly. Even with his great education, he missed Jesus. And so, again, education is fine. It's a good thing. It's a gift of God. Study, you know, get smart. Um, but it is not where we find ultimate truth. And it does not have ultimate bearing on someone knowing the truth of God. And so these people are, are challenging Jesus. How do you know anything? You're not trained. How do you have learning? And look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You guys, that is so profound. He says, listen, this isn't even my ideas. This is not my teaching. It is God's who sent me. And I just want to ask you, I want to take a pause and ask you this. Is this book right here that we are reading a book full of the teaching of people or is this book the teaching of God? <laughs> Good job. Is this book, merely, this is important, is this merely people's words about God or is this actually words from God? 
And did Jesus and the apostles and all the writers of every one of these books speak on their own authority, on their own experiences that they had, or did they actually speak with the authority of God? These are really important questions. Because these people certainly had lives and they had experiences and they had experiences with God, but I just, we, we need to get this right. Did all the writers of this book simply just record, here's what happened when God came and talked to me, or did they actually write and speak with the authority of God? And I just want to clearly, boldly, unequivocally, unapologetically say, this book is the word of God. It has authority in it. It has the breath of God on every page. And listen, God definitely used people's personalities and their circumstances to be like a canvas, but the masterpiece is the word of God. He certainly used as a backdrop real people and real situations in history. All this stuff actually happened, but when he spoke, it was the authority and word and the breath of God. And when people recorded like, wow, the Red Sea split, that sentence as they wrote it down had the breath of God in it. And we actually have, this right here is more than the work of human beings. Like just trip out what's in your lap right now is more than the work of human beings. You have something that literally came from heaven. It came from God. Like this book is not simply people's good stories about God. It is spoken by the breath of God and therefore has the authority of God. And I'm just gonna read us a couple of verses from this book that have the authority of God as the, and it's talking about itself. And it says this, for 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, all scripture, which means Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22, whatever the last verse is, and everything in between, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable, meaning like it's useful. It's a good thing for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. All of it is from God. Another verse, um, oh, I didn't write it down, but it's somewhere in... Where does this verse come? You know what? I have many, so I'm going to skip that one. First Peter chapter 1, verse 21 said this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When someone heard from God, like in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah heard from God, he wasn't like, oh, that's cool. Like, yeah, I'm going to write down what God said. He didn't even, he didn't produce it. It wasn't his will. He spoke from God as he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that really looks like. But as he was writing the words that he received from God, he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And do you know what's crazy? In verse 16 of our chapter, even Jesus says, don't take my word for it. My teaching isn't even mine. It's from my Father in heaven. Like if we had any person to be like, yeah, I wanna know about his teaching, it's Jesus. And even Jesus in verse 16 says, my teaching is not mine, but his 
who I came from, him who sent me. Even Jesus was speaking like from God and everything he said had the authority of heaven on it. Like that's just crazy because people think, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher and I I think we can learn some things from him, but you know, he's probably just a man and so I'm not gonna take everything. Jesus said, my teaching isn't mine. It's from God. Everything Jesus said had the authority of God on it. And uh, this is just so important, you guys, because we hear all the time, yeah, this is, this is the good book, right? It's a really good book. And it's got good ideas. But listen, it was written by human beings. And so, of course, it's going to have some errors. It's going to, you know, just be bound up in the context that it came from thousands of years ago. And so it, it for sure has good stuff. But like that was thousands of years ago. We live in a different time and so maybe you can speak some things but like there's a big difference between our context and their context and so who really knows exactly what we can keep and what we can't keep and I just wanna say God has been around for a long time and when God speaks to people it has his authority not just for a thousand years ago it has authority today and this entire book was actually spoken by God. Yes, it was spoken in a time but it came from God and it still has his authority. And listen, people said otherwise in Jesus' day. They're like, Jesus, what are you saying? People say otherwise in our day. Um, you have encountered professors and pastors even who have said, hey, all that stuff is not true. It's not that important. Um, it's this idea of inerrancy came up 100 years ago. We made this up. We made up the idea that this is the word of God. And um, I just want to tell you with Jesus that this book has the authority of God on it. It's from him. And it therefore has relevance for your life. And I love even this book says, hey, there's nothing new under the sun. Meaning people 2,000 years ago, they're pretty much like people today. Yeah, they didn't have like an iPhone, but like their hearts were the same. And um, so this is what I'm gonna do because this is so important that this book and its teaching, like Jesus said, is from heaven, from God. I'm gonna, we're gonna spend, I don't know, a chunk of our time like fleshing out what does it mean that it's from God. Um, We're gonna look at two important terms and then I'm gonna look at five really common objections to the idea that this is actually from God. Um, Two important terms. Number one, these are like technical terms. Uh, We believe as Christians in the doctrine of perspicuity. What the heck does that mean? Uh, It's a fancy word that smart people made up that means, the word perspicuity means it's clear. Meaning, when God gave us his word, he made it clear and understandable even to the most common person there was. When God speaks, he speaks in a way that he can be known. He can be understood. I'm gonna read you a verse that talks about this idea. Isaiah 45, 19 says this. God is speaking and says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Meaning every verse in this book is clear and is able to be understood. Now, now, if we don't understand, usually that means there's a problem like, you know, with us, like we need to learn more, like something won't be really clear right off the bat. And so we go to other people and we, who understand things and we, we get help. But listen, God says, I don't speak in secret. I don't like speak over here and like you gotta figure it out. I don't speak in darkness. We don't need like 
gurus to explain to us what this means. God speaks clearly, meaning in love for you, you don't need a professor or a PhD to help you know what this book means. This book was written for clear, normal people, for like children can understand the meaning of this book. The disciples who were fishermen could understand the meaning of this book. God did not say, seek me in vain. He speaks clearly. That's the doctrine of perspicuity. Then another important doctrine is the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible, okay? This is a really common word. It's a really unpopular word. And what it means, what it teaches is because this book is from God, it's perfect. It has no errors in what it teaches or records. And in case you don't like that idea, I want to tell you what the Bible says about that idea. Psalm 119 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, Proverbs chapter 30, every word of God proves true. In John 10, Jesus says these words later, scripture cannot be broken. Um, many people say, no, sorry, we made that up. This, this is the thing, you know, it's, it's got a bunch of errors in it. And I just want to simply confidently say it doesn't because it's from God. And if there is misunderstanding, maybe there's a problem with how I'm understanding. Like maybe this book is perfect. Um, and so I'm going to dive deeper into five uh, most common reasons why people reject those two truths, okay? Uh, objection number one to the idea of inerrancy is we made that up a hundred years ago by a group of people called the fundamentalists, okay? This is what the fundamentalists made up. And to that, I will say, you know what? You're right. We made up the word a hundred years ago. Um, do you know what else is a new word? Dab. You guys know the word dab? Yeah, we know what a dab is. It's new. But do you know it's not new? Dancing is not new, right? Uh, hey, do you know it's a new word? Inerrancy? Do you know it's not a new truth? The fact that the word of God is perfect. We made up a word 100 years ago to, to talk about what this thing is, but this thing has always claimed that it's from God and it's perfect. Um, it's not describing a new truth. It's describing an old truth. And, you know, some people say, yeah, you know, but we've kind of just figured this out. And so I really briefly and quickly want to walk you through some church history to, to read you a couple of quotes. Um, there's a guy named Clement of Rome. He lived in AD 96. That's about 60 years after Jesus. Let me tell you what he said. The Holy Scriptures, which are true, which were given through the Holy Spirit, you know nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written in them. That's a 1,900-year-old quote. A guy named Justin Martyr wrote in AD 160, Since I am entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another, I shall admit, rather, that I do not understand what is recorded and shall strive to persuade those who imagine that the scriptures are contradictory to be rather of the same opinion of myself. Uh, this guy named Irenaeus in 200 AD said, being most properly assured that the scriptures are indeed perfect, since they were spoken by the word of God and his spirit. There is a man named Augustine in the 400s, and he said, it seems to me that the most disastrous consequence must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. 
And this is not a new idea. Uh, I could read you quotes, which I'm not going to because it would take too long, from men such as Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin. I could read you confessions, the French Confession of Faith from the 1500s, the Westminster Confession from the 1600s. People, uh, secular and religious, agree that the smartest brain that America's ever had was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He's believed in the inerrancy, the perfection of scriptures. I'm going to read you one more quote from John Wesley. And he said this, listen, nay, I love he starts with nay. If there be any mistakes in the Bible... There may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from God. That's what John Wesley taught about the word of God. And so objection number one, this idea that the Bible's uh, inerrancy is a new thing is simply not true. It's just not true. Uh, Common objection number two is uh, the kind of like the scientific argument, right? Okay, listen, scripture was written in a pre-scientific age and it didn't have all our modern advancements and all our modern technology and all our modern learning. Um, listen, so if you really understand you know, science like we do now, you would understand it's scientifically impossible for a man to live in a whale for three days and survive. That's not possible. And if you really understood science, it would be impossible for the sun to stand still in the sky for even an hour. It's just not how the solar system works. And you know what? It's scientifically impossible for a man to be in the grave for three days and come back to life. That just, science says that doesn't happen. Um, And you know, I would say, you're right. You're right. That's scientifically impossible. 100%. It doesn't make sense. Like, I can't live in a whale. It's impossible. However, I would also suggest there's a being in the universe named Yahweh who is not physically limited to science that he himself created. And he can do scientifically impossible stuff. You can call it miracles. You can call it the supernatural. You can just call it God doing whatever God wants. And from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, God has been acting supernaturally doing miraculous stuff. Listen, if, if the stuff in here didn't happen, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're dead in our sins, like there's no hope for us. Like why would we say, yeah, but that one seems like a really big break of science. So I just don't think that that happened. Like God, like God, like he made everything out of nothing. I think he can like suspend the solar system for now. I don't know how it works. It doesn't work. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And so I would just humbly say to people who say, look, we have science, this book is wrong. I would just say, yeah, but we also have God. Science is a good thing. It helps us understand the natural laws God has made. Praise God for science. But like, we also have God who has spoken truth to us. Another common objection to inerrancy is, do you know what? There are contradictions in this book. And since there are contradictions you know, it makes sense that it's probably not a perfect book from God. This one's really, really common. It's a human book written from a human perspective and they're limited. And so look, we we shouldn't expect that everything in here is like historically perfect and geographically perfect and scientifically perfect. And so I was like, okay, that's that's a fair thing. Um, And so I would honestly say this to someone who says, look, there's contradictions. I would honestly say, Sure, okay, cool, fine. Can you help me see even one contradiction? And uh, there's actually none. I just want to say that. Um, this week, I searched the top seven results on Google. 
for uh, Bible contradictions, you should do this. It'll actually make you like, oh, cool. You guys, I spent like an hour looking for one. And there wasn't any. And here's the closest thing that people will say. Um, And I'll use a modern example to to describe what people say is a contradiction in the Bible. If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, how do you get from Carpinteria to Santa Barbara? And someone says, oh, take PCH. And then that person says, okay, I don't know what PCH is. And they go to somebody else and say, "How, how do you get from Carp to Santa Barbara? And someone says, listen, you take the 101 North. Then they say, contradiction. They said PCH and he said 101 North. Therefore, these people are telling me wrong things. What I would simply say is the fact that you are saying that's a contradiction just shows you don't know what you're talking about because PCH actually, and it's okay if you don't know this, but PCH is, it merges with the 101 for a couple of miles through Santa Barbara and then it splits again. So in the Bible, we have multiple authors, like in the Gospels, recording a story, sure, from their perspective, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And some would include some details of the story, and then some would see the story and and record other details. And so people say, look, the stories don't line up. And you can literally say with every one of those cases, well, yeah, this person's sharing these parts of the story, and this person's sharing these parts of the story, a really common one is where the guy's paralyzed and his four friends bring him to Jesus to be healed, right? In Matthew. Um, And he gets healed by Jesus. But in Matthew, it doesn't say anything about the part where they come down from the roof. And if you read it in Mark, it says, and then they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered him down. And so people say, look, this story, there's clearly contradictions. To which I would just say, Matthew didn't include that part. And that is actually, sorry, every single seeming contradiction can be really reasonably explained. And I, I really do want to say, if you don't think that is true, I would love to talk with you about genuine questions that you have. Like, listen, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. Like, the genealogies, look, this genealogy says these names, and this genealogy says these names. What I would simply say is, in Jewish genealogies, they intentionally just wanted you to see some names and not other names. They weren't trying to write the same kind of genealogies we were. Um, so I would just say any apparent contradiction usually can be cleared up with like, oh, okay, I get it. Okay, for sure. Um, and I literally looked on seven websites and I couldn't find one. Um, so just know that. Like the Bible doesn't contradict itself. That's all. Just thank you, God. You're perfect. You know what you're talking about. Um, number four, there's this objection to the doctrine of perspicuity that says, and we address this a bit, listen, you really need an, a, the right education and you need to know, um, like, you, you need to, like, really be studied up to truly understand what this stuff means. To which I would read you one of my favorite verses in college. It's a snarky verse, but it's in the Bible. Psalm 119, 99 says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." understanding comes from God and his word, not from our teachers. And the wisest man who ever lived, his name was Solomon, he said this in his book, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. And then he says in the next verse, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. I just want to say like God's word can be understood and you can understand it. And nowhere in the Bible says, listen, you really need smart people to teach you what this really means. This is what the whole Reformation was like about. 
church kind of, we got off and we're like, no, we need priests and we need to understand like the original languages. And so regular people never had Bibles in their own languages. And, and we like needed all these other people to tell us about God. And like things got off because people weren't reading the Bible saying, no, that's off. And the Reformation was like, listen, if you just get this book in regular people's hands, it will be more than enough. And that like shook things up, you guys. Like that, people were killed for just getting a translation of this book in their language. Because there's real power in getting someone just a Bible. And like that was the Reformation. Let's just get the word of God back to people in their language. Now again, education is cool. It's really good. If, you didn't, if we didn't have smart people to help translate Greek and Hebrew, it would be hard, right? Like, so thank you God for smart people. But the wisdom from heaven is found in this book. Um, a couple verses on that just that are awesome. In, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, God says all the time, and he just says in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel. Do you remember who the Israelites were at that moment? They were like common, uneducated slaves that had been in poverty for 400 years. And God just kept saying, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel. Like this book was written to people who couldn't even read and God could clearly speak to them. Praise God that we can read and we know stuff and we have books, but like there's more than enough to simply hear God's voice on our own in this book. And then I love this one, Acts 4, 13. Uh, The apostles are just like making trouble and all the religious people are upset. And Acts 4, 13 says this, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Man, do you know what you need to be with Jesus? You don't need education. You can be a common person with a regular old brain, but you can read this book and be with Jesus, and you will be very, very effective because of it. And then the last objection to perspicuity is this. This one's really important. You, to really understand this book, you need to know all the historical context to find the true meaning of this book. Listen, you won't understand the true meaning of these things until you are an expert in, you know, the history and the culture of that time. It's a really, really common uh, objection, and that is used as a weapon against really difficult things in this book all the time. Listen, if you really understood what was going on then, you you would understand this isn't really saying what it looks like it's saying. Um, And now I want to say this. Understanding the history and the culture is a good and fine thing. And it's cool because God really spoke to real people 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. They were real people in history, which means we can learn stuff about them because it really happened. But um, I just want to say this. This book is like, picture like a window, right? And God is like outside and we're inside. And when God speaks to us, it's like light coming from the sun into a house, right? The the truth and the beauty is the light that comes in the window. Now, our windows can be kind of dirty. And our windows can be like, kind of has smudges over here and smudges over here. And what that represents is our own culture and our own context. Like, so when you hear, you know, something about, 
I don't know, a denarii in the temple, you're like, okay, well, I don't know what that's talking about. Because like, yeah, that's that culture. And it's kind of like a smudgy thing. I don't understand. And the more you understand the culture and the context, it kind of helps you remove smudges to let more light in. Okay. But I just want to say that understanding culture and context is not the light. It's just clearing your window to more clearly see the light that's coming in. And the more culture and history you learn, it will never block light. That's not what it does. It will simply allow more light to come in. And I, you know, so study history and study geography and geology and all of that stuff. But that stuff isn't the light. This book is the light. And, and so the more we study, the more we're like, oh, okay, I get it. And um, I, I want to help you see a good example of understanding historical context and what it means for the Bible. So in Revelation 3, Jesus is addressing different churches, and he addresses the church in Laodicea. And remember, he says, you guys are lukewarm, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. And he says, I wish you were either hot or cold, right? And so you read that, and you think, okay, maybe you would think, so is Jesus saying he wishes we were either like really hot on fire for the Lord or like we just were like really cold and, and he would rather us be cold than lukewarm? Maybe we think that. Sure, yeah, okay, maybe you would interpret those verses to mean that. And then if you learn, well, actually in Laodicea, it was like in this end of this valley where there were hot springs over here and there were cold springs over here. And hot springs were really useful and had cool minerals and they were useful and people loved them. And then cold springs are great because it's good for drinking. But when uh, they, they blended together right before Laodicea, and so Laodicea's water supply had like this crazy combo of minerals and it was like gross water and it wasn't useful for anything. And so Jesus was using a cultural, like a geographical example. Listen, you guys are like your water. You're just lukewarm and I want to spit you out of my mouth. And when you learn, oh, okay, like that's cool, it gives more light to what Jesus said. It makes it more clear. But listen, understanding geography and history would never make us say, when Jesus said, I, you're lukewarm and I want to spit you out of my mouth, what he actually means is they're not lukewarm and he doesn't want to spit them out of their mouth. It never would make us think the opposite of what was said. That's not how it works. It just brings more light and understanding to something that's not super clear. And so historical context is a good, fine tool, and it has its place. But the the other thing I want to say is this. When we look at context, we've heard the expression, context is king, right? And that's a fine expression. There's like a hierarchy of context when we're reading the word of God, and here's how it goes. When we say look at the context of a verse in the Bible, do you know what the first thing we should do is? Look at the verses around it. That's the first thing we should do. Okay, what's the context of this verse? What, are the thing, what, was, what were the author talking about before? What does he go out say after that? Then the next thing, if it's still not clear, is then we look at the context of that book of the Bible. Okay, what's the whole book about? And then we should say, what's the context of its place in the Bible? So, oh, okay, I see it's in this general flow, and this is why it fits here. And then we go to this thing called linguistic context, which means what do these words mean? Like, what does the origin of this word mean? What is the history of how these words were used? And then, and only then, at the bottom rung of studying context of the Bible is its historical, geographical context. It has its place, but it comes after all of that other stuff and study because, listen, here's so, this is so important. 
when you read something in the Bible and you're not super clear about it, did, did they really mean that? This is the most important truth you can learn. We interpret unclear things in the Bible with clear things in the Bible. We do not interpret unclear things with the Bible with, you know, a lot of historical study and then make our conclusion. That's so far down the list. We say, does the Bible said anything more clear about this verse? And you guys, I believe 100% of the time, the word of God is sufficient and you will be able to find truth. When you genuinely say, okay, that verse, what does this mean? This is difficult. Well, what does the Bible say about it? And if it's important, which it probably is, God will certainly have said it many, many times in many, many ways. And listen, God's intent to give us his book is to be clear. It's sufficient for godliness and life in the Lord. And so Jesus doesn't hide a really important truth in a really obscure place in secret and say like, I'm gonna say this, but it's not gonna be clear and they're gonna have to study a lot of history to figure out what it means. That's not God's heart in speaking to us. And so when we don't understand a verse, or I'll be honest, when we don't like a verse, we need to go and say, what do other places in God's word say about this particular truth. And I will confidently say, you'll find it. You will find it. Um, uh, as we like kind of wrap up, as Jesus is saying, listen, my teaching is not mine, it's from the Father. I just want to give us a gentle warning that the Bible says. Second uh, Timothy chapter four says this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Um, you guys, the Bible shows us the number one reason people reject truths in the Bible is because they have their own passions, their own desires. And so they reject clear teaching found in the Bible. They, they rob it of its authority. They say, no, well, it doesn't really mean it's not this. It's not really from God. It's this and that. So that they can actually just do what they want. That's what the, the Bible says. That is why the time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching but have itching ears and they will accumulate the, for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Listen, you can always find somebody who will tell you the Bible says you can have what you want. That you will always be able to find somebody who says, I don't like the doctrine of hell. Listen, you can find a lot of smart people who will tell you in a lot of books, listen, you don't really have to believe in that. You can find a smart teacher with a PhD and published books to tell you anything you want to hear. And I just, I just want to say, I want, I want to know what God wants to say and has to say. And sometimes I don't like what it says. And there's been many times in my life where this book has confronted me. It's been sharp like the sword and I haven't liked it. But God has led me to see, man, this actually beautiful. What I didn't like, it's led me to life. Peter writes a similar thing in 2 Peter 3. He says, listen, do you know what? There are some things in the scriptures that are hard to understand. And then he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And I just, uh, I want to ask us, man, is there any of that temptation in my heart? Am I allowing my desires and what I want to affect how I read this book? Do I like see that light coming in? And I'm like, mm, I'm going to smudge it there. So it doesn't have to like, I don't have to look at that. I don't like that. Is there any bit of that in my own heart? 
And, and that's why Jesus, to, to finish, in verse 17 says, uh, in John chapter 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or I'm speaking on my own authority. What Jesus is saying is, listen, uh, it's what we talked about last week. My sheep, those who really want to know God, will be able to understand. Sheep do know their shepherd's voice. They're not that smart, but they know what their shepherd sounds like. And what he's saying is, if your heart's been changed and you've been born again and the Spirit's given you a new heart and a new mind and you desire to do God's will, you'll be able to recognize this is the, these are the words of God. And listen, if you don't want to do God's will, it's not going to be clear to you if this teaching is from God or not. And uh, Jeremiah 6.16, I just, I just want to, I, want to, I know this has been kind of hard and maybe a little confrontational, but listen to what Jeremiah chap- says in chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they say, we will not walk in it. You guys, I just want to testify like there is life and rest for your souls when you read and believe and obey God's word. There is rest for your souls. But there will always be people who say, don't walk in it. Do not walk in it. And uh, I know I've said this so many times. The last thing I'll say is this, to close is this. Uh, we said this last week. Listen, this is the word of God, and it's perfect, and it will lead you to life. But it's not enough to simply believe that and agree with me and agree, like, yeah, this is the Bible, this is God's word. And it's not even enough to just obey this book. And the last thing Jesus says in verse 19 is this. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. You guys, even if we believe, yes, this is from God, and I, I want to obey it as the best I can, no human being has ever obeyed this book. No mere human has ever even obeyed the clear laws of God. And you know what? Sin is when we're like, I think I know a better way than what God has said. That was the first sin in the Garden of Eden, and ever since then, our sin is when we hear truth and we know what is right and we say, I think I, I, I know better. And so it's not enough to just believe in this book and obey this book and know like, yes, this is God's book. You guys, we need a savior who is the only one who has perfectly kept all that is in this book. We need more than the words of God. We need like the word of God who is Jesus, who came into the world to save us from our foolishness and our sin and our rebellion. And do you know what the most important thing this book does? It shows you Jesus. This, the most important thing this book does isn't just give you truth and like make you smarter than all your professors. It shows you Jesus. And Jesus just said in John chapter five, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. Listen, there's a lot of people who know the scriptures and search the scriptures and are all about the scriptures and have the scriptures memorized. and are like, yes, it's the word of God, it's the word of God. Jesus is talking to like Bible people, the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me 
that you may have life. You guys, this book leads us to Jesus and what he has done for rebellious people like you and me. And that though we've not obeyed this book and we thought we were smarter here and there, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I will perfectly obey and then I will go to a cross where I will receive the wrath of God for the sinners of all the sins of all the sinners in the world that if they would trust me, all their rebellion and all their foolishness will be removed and they'll be forgiven and all of my righteousness will be poured out on them. You guys, that truth, the gospel, is why we read this book. To remember what Jesus has done and to be with Jesus. So listen, yes, read your Bible every day, but don't forget why you're reading it. Like, I need to find Jesus in here. I'm a sinner. I haven't got it right. I, I feel discouraged. I don't understand it all. Listen, you will find Jesus if you look for him. He is on every page in every book. The grace of God saying, look, people, they failed. The Old Testament just failing, failing, failing. And God is continually merciful and gracious. That is why we read this book to find Jesus. And so I'm going to read us a quote from John Wesley and close this. And we're going to worship and spend time with Jesus. Uh, this is like a 300-year-old quote, so his words are kind of weird and hard to, hard to understand, but it's really good, so just listen. John Wesley said this, to, to candid, reasonable people, I'm not afraid to lay open what has been the most inmost thoughts of my heart. I have thought I am a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a mere spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf a few moments and I am seen no more till I drop into the unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God here is knowledge enough for me. In his presence, I open, I read his book for this end to find the way to heaven. Is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear dark or intricate? I lift up my heart to the father of light. Lord, is this not thy word? And you said, if any man like wisdom, let him ask God. You give it liberally. You have said, if any be willing to do thy will, he shall know. Lord, I am willing to do it. Let me know thy will. I then search after and consider parallel passages of scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I meditate thereon with all the attention and earnestness of which my mind is capable. If any doubt still remains, I consult those who are experienced in the things of God. And then the writings whereby being dead, yet they speak. And what I thus learn that I teach. So Jesus, together, we just say, help us, help us understand your word. Lord, there's so much to experience in life and so much to learn, but Lord, would our prayer be, I want to understand your word and your truth and your ways. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would use this book like a sword to cut away what needs to go, that we would be saved that we'd be saved from our own ideas and anything that's of the world. Cut it away, Holy Spirit. Lead us to your truth and to life that is found in you. God, I ask, please, 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 as we just 
hopefully, Lord, remove barriers to trusting that this book is your word? Would you give us faith, increase our trust, that we can read the first and last page of this book and know truth and know you, God, that this book, we would commune with you as we read it, not just to be smarter, Lord, but that we would meet Jesus in it, that, that your spirit would, as it convicts us of sin and ways we've been off, that, that then we would remember Jesus who came for sinners like us. Jesus, you came to seek and save lost people like us, that we would have life, that we would know you, that we could worship you, God. Lord, I thank you that, that you initiate, that you pursue, that you speak. It's how you created the universe. Even tonight as we studied your word, it was this act of your love saying, listen to me, come to me. Come and find rest for your souls in me and in my word. So Lord, as we worship now, would we just be honest with you, God, about any doubts, any questions? Would we be honest with someone around us? Like if we have questions, if we're confused, would we just be honest? Like, will you pray for me? I, I want to understand it. Lord, would we confess any areas of just unbelief or any ways in which we've just saw what you said and said, I, I don't want to look at that. I, I don't want to believe that. And, and more than anything else, Holy Spirit, please, please, please show us Jesus tonight. Show us that though we've been foolish, you love us. And you left heaven for us and you died on the cross that we could have forgiveness and life. Show us Jesus tonight, Lord.